spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, T.B. Spitzer, and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leanings. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. Hey everybody, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, and this guy over here, Farmer Dave. How are you doing today? I am well. You're well? That is great. I am... A ditch. Uh, (laughs) No, I'm doing pretty great. Uh, Yeah, no, and uh, things are going pretty okay in Oleander. Uh, How are things over at the farm? Well, we're getting ready. You know that soon we will be having the World Goat Olympics. Yeah. So we're getting our goats out every four years. Goats from all over the world come to Sandy, Oregon to participate in the spirit of goatiness to in such great goat fields as being hungry, chewing your cud, looking at a farmer's wall dye. So uh, we've got some really good contenders, I think, this year. Cool, cool. Yeah, no, uh, I heard that uh, the folks over at Oblivion's are getting their black scary goats, their their scary goats with the big horns and the pointy beards and the red eyes they're getting theirs uh, ready for the goat olympics the, 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 the blood goats yeah blood goats i don't know i mean y- you think that a blood goat isn't going to live up to its name and then you see a blood goat in person and you're like wow that thing's the size of a great dane yeah. And they're carnivorous. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Where... Yeah, the only goats there I've ever seen that have, you know, predator teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and, and their eyes are just a little bit for, facing forward. So I don't know if they're like, anyway, and, enough and, about. And, 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 and they're called blood goats uh-huh. because uh, cause, uh, they're always bloodshot. Yeah. Their eyes are always red. Yeah. I think they're, you... you have those goats that scream. These are goats that like have an internal scream. Yes. Anyway. You shine a light at a goat at night. No, their, their eyes reflect blue. Uh-huh. Blood goats reflect blood red. Blood red. But blood goats. Yeah. So but yeah. So so, so we, we'll, we we wish everyone. We'll, we'll see how it's going. Yeah, we we wish everyone the best of luck, but we wish Dave more luck than other people. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And uh, I have something weird going on in town right now. Um, I don't know if anyone's tuned into uh, 
11.30 a.m., but it's 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 kind of a weird buzzing sound, and you can kind of hear stuff coming through it every once in a while. Uh, I don't know if it's bleed through from, like, down south or somewhere else, mm. but anyway, it's crazy. It's kooky. You should check it out. 11.30 a.m. Uh, if you are in North Clackamas, and I don't know if you can hear it over in Portland, uh, or but if you're in Sandy, I'm sure you can probably hear it. It's 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 weird. Uh, it's not Morse code. It's not a repeating pattern. It sounds like someone faintly talking. So pretty cool. Not, not, Check not, it out. Not like number stations. Not like number stations. No, I I miss the quaint number stations we used to have bleeding into uh, 11:30 a.m. back in the old days. Now you could hear them here and there on. Uh, uh, Radio Free Oleander, but hey, this is People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, and we're going to be talking about, let me pull up my notes real quick, we're going to be talking about Alozar and Alala uh, in just a little bit, uh, in kind of a D&D on D&D and C-O-C, as in Call of Cthulhu, not corrosion of conformity or any other thing that COC stands for. Dave, what do you know about these, uh, these, these mythos place and thing? Or I guess it's a place and a thing, just like last week, uh, the week before last. <laughs> Yeah, or or a person thing. Yeah. So, so here's the the thing that um th th these are some pretty obscure ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're in the A's. We're in the A's. We're in the early A's. So, but I will say um that the the first one, I mean, to me, it just it always seemed like you know they deliberately misspelled things from one person to another mm -hmm. and it to me it just seemed like a version of of the plot plateau of link yeah yeah and just like a different lang finding a different language mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that spoke you know the the plot so i will say i know the least about the how is that pronounced again the Alo Ozar, the Alo fabled Ozar. buried city on the mysterious plateau of Sung in Burma. Sung is also believed to be an extension of the plateau of Lang. Yeah, no, no, it's one of these, like, the city is said to be located in the Isle of Stars within the Lake of Dread. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think... Um, I, I, and Burma, of course, is sort of a hotbed for, for Cthulhu's mythos mm -hmm, be, mm -hmm. because of the Churchill people. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, is this the city that is in where the two uh, Cthulhu, uh, you know, children of Cthulhu are buried? Oh, Zara and Ligor? In a Dareleth, yeah, in one of the Dareleth. Yeah, um, yeah, it's Zara and Ligor, I believe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is this is where the uh, descendants or the uh, the ancestors, the Chocho, first came to Earth, I think, or something like that. And, and I think that, and, uh, and I, th I think it's the lair of the Starspawn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I think that it's described as a stone city. Yeah, yeah. And people are a like... A lot like, um, like the uh, temples uh, Angkor Wat mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in, in uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. I guess Angkor Wat specifically is in Cambodia. Cambodia yeah. So I, I got that kind of impression when I read that story. Yeah, that's what my brain kind of filled in. And uh, I, there's people who are like, no, wait a minute, the Chocho are are, are uh, evolved from the Miri Negri, who are the, uh, and I can't remember who the Miri Negri are. The they're aliens. They're I aliens that are... They tip my cows over. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this isn't about the Chocho. This is about Alozar. And yeah, no, I, mean, I was like thinking, how would I use this in a D&D game or a COC game? And it's like, it's like a distant, distant, distant area. Uh, maybe I would use it like the ruins of Angkor Wat. You know, it's it's like a place that just like if you go during the daytime, it's going to be fine. But at night, there's like, I don't know, bandits or worse, people who worship, you know, uh, Tsar and Ligor kind of thing. Or just even, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like maybe back in the 1920s it was a place of mystery but now in the uh 2020s uh if you're playing call of cthulhu now in the 1990s i don't know it's 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 like totally been mapped out it's it's like you can you, you know you can go there and have spotty cell phone reception but it's not unheard of uh you know it's it's like there was a national geographic special about uh, Aloazar, you know, in, in in the late 90s, not really, but, you know, or a Discovery Channel special, you know, just kind of like make it kind of like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, this place used to be really mysterious, but all the mystery is gone now that we can just like helicopter in, you know, uh, <laughs> but then find well, well, out well, that. I, or, or play with it. Yeah. Because, you know, I think um, so part of it is I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Great Zimbabwe which is a, a stone city in Africa, mm. you know, that when, when, you know, the Europeans were hunter gatherers, yeah. they built this incredible stone city in Africa, you know, why couldn't they have built this incredible stone city? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's going to predate Western society, yeah. uh, predate maybe even human beings, Ooh. but I say play with it, you know, Oh, I've got, look at my, my app here. I've got all this, but, what they don't realize is once they cross the line, you know, Lang doesn't quite exist on Earth. It yeah. exists in different dimensions. That's what I was going to say. So you got say. this all this map, and then, you know, you're looking at the satellite, and the satellite right above you mm-hmm. is saying that there should be three stones, not four stones in front of you, mm-hmm. and it's not picking you up. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I was going to say, like, what about something like Angkor Wat? But uh, it all depends on what shadows are made by what that, you know, the angles start doing things. So, you know, it it, it is a uh, functioning city of the Chocho people who live in the space that exists between Lang and Sun. Or, you know, when Sun connects to Lang on an interdimensional level, that's when it becomes a functioning city, and that's when people should stay the heck away. But, you know, otherwise it's just this, like, remote, remote, remote ruins that, you know, maybe it's some sort of, like, uh, I don't know, Brigadoon kind of thing, but, you know, more often than <laughs> yeah. every whatever 
100 years or I, I, I don't know. Uh, I'll be honest. My, my Brigadoon references are all from uh, Scrooge McDuck Dell Comics. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, Aluazar, I don't know, I, I think there's a lot of cool stuff you could do with it, you could, uh, you know, definitely make it kind of like the place that you have to, like, go and get the MacGuffin from, and, you know, fight your way, make it, make it yeah, the end point, make it your, uh, Kurt's compound of, uh, Apocalypse Now, or, uh, Heart, Heart of Darkness, you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff you can do. I, I, I definitely agree with that, and, and you know, in real life, I you know, I feel very sorry for you know the, the Mayagarians, what they're going through right yes. now. Yeah, it, it's just a, a terrible thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But and game time is just a fascinating place, especially you know uh, a World War II setting. Yeah, I was thinking you know, Delta Burma, Green. Burma is Burma is the forgotten theater, yeah. the Indian Burma theater. Mm -hmm. So much had happened there, and I think even Octum. Cthulhu covers, you know, th th there's so much there yeah. that is often th that your players probably don't know that much about them. I was just thinking, it's like, you know what, I, I, I have no idea what's going on in Burma. So like having uh, players play, uh, you know, like pretend to be t tourists in Burma, maybe those people would be like pretty awful people or like Delta Green or something like that, you know? Yeah. But, well, well, and then for for those audience, you know, Burma is the old term. Yeah, it, it's now. So when you talk, they talk about it in the news, it's Mayagar. Oh, okay, okay. And where All they right. just had the the revolution uh, in the last couple of months. Oh, or the the junta. Yeah. So the you know, it, it's not. I mean, obviously, we want to keep real life things out of gaming to a certain yeah. degree. Yeah. But but the the military of Burma ha has always been one of sort of a go-to bad guys for my game set like in the, the 21st century mm -hmm. okay all right huh interesting okay so then uh we have alala who la 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 also known as the herald of sequela and you you actually were knowing some stuff about this uh, the only thing i really knew is that alala is some like third tier greek goddess second tier greek goddess not not like a really kind of like well-known greek goddess but so it's mentioned <laughs> once uh -huh, in, uh -huh. in the in the white people yeah it just once is thrown out there and then and, and then it's used uh ram or um brian lumley mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, brian lumley started using it in his stories Ooh. Um, and the, you know, uh, then that got, um, hold it. Uh, and I, I'm, I, I you, people listening to me later on today in the show, I'm going to mispronounce people's last name that I've known for years, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, I think it's Scott David Anolowski. Okay. Um, he, um, had a lot to do with the call of Cthulhu mm -hmm. with Chaosium. Okay. And so he uh, basically collected and edited um, uh, Strangers of uh, Strange Songs, Ooh. Uh, which is a collection of basically stories that are uh, based on some of, 
the uh, Brian Lumley mythos and characters. Uh, and so they reappear there, but at the same time, uh, he starts using them in um, uh, Chaosium, uh, including um, uh, Goatswood and uh, less, less Nice Places, I believe it's <laughs> called or something. Yeah. The most famous or probably influential of the, the stories that are uh, in Singers of Strange Songs mm-hmm. is... Um, Oh, uh, in his doctor, uh, in his daughter's darkling womb, uh, by Tina J. Jens. Yeah, uh, which is pretty a pretty influential story. But that's where we get some more of a la 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 la. I guess you're saying too. He also uses it in his, his Secrets of Kenya supplement. Yeah, yeah, David Conyers. Yeah, uh, uses oh, okay. it in uh, Secrets of uh, Kenya for Call of Cthulhu. It's something that I read. Uh, yeah, no, apparently it's a, a, a beast uh, entity made of, uh, of, of of living sound. Sound. Yeah. And and so this is sort of what, and so most of what we got uh-huh. from, it, it comes, other than throwaway stuff, it comes from Chaosium. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are the denizens of, you probably pronounce it much better than I do. So clear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, so, you know, this is kind of their deity. Mm-hmm. And at the same part, he apparently is associated with one of the outer gods orbiting Azathoth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, I think, and this is, I'm going to go off on a tangent a bit. Sure. But I think a lot of it, he's uh, more like Dagon. Yeah. So he's not necessarily a god unto himself. And he's the Cthulhu, biggest. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's he, the he, alpha of the uh, sound sound things. <laughs> the silverback. Yeah, exactly. But they never say that. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know... I think there's more, you know, your mileage may vary, mm-hmm, make mm-hmm. up your mythos in call and Cthulhu mythos than anything else. Yeah. And and I think personally, it's sort of an answer and a rebellion against August Derelis for so long saying, No, this is what is, I control this, I own the copyrights even when he doesn't. Yeah. And so and this is the way and you know, and he started combining Christianity uh-huh, uh-huh. and alchemy and all these. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, I've I've seen nerds you know that come to, you know, a fight over you know what is canon Loki, what is canon Captain America. Uh-huh. But most mythos, you know, fans are pretty sort of laid back and where everybody's allowed to have their head canon. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, and with something as undefined as the Cthulhu mythos, you can just pretty much go all over the place. And, you know, I know there's like, I've, I've been on panels where someone mentions elemental theory in August Derleth and, uh, you see like half the panel kind of like sigh and roll their eyes and the other group, 
other part just kind of like just like nod ahead like yeah i'm familiar with it and then other mm -hmm. people look blankly like okay you just talked about something but no one's ever really like yeah <laughs> elemental theory yeah. yeah let's let's talk about how cthulhu's trapped underwater even though he's aquatic no one cares let's move on <laughs> And another thing, and like I said, it also brings in the gaming tie. Yeah. So I, I'm pretty sure that it's uh, the either the de early of the uh, you know the monster books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it's either the the de denizens of Sequala uh -huh. or -la 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 him himself. Yeah. That the part that they put in, you know, where they put part from some mythos text. Sure. Is um. The music of Eric Zan. Mm. So and 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 so this didn't really, even if we you know say originally it's like this sort of throw out in, in the white people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which is probably I think you're right. It's probably to more of an obscure Greek goddess than yeah. trying to create their own thing. Yeah, you know, Lovecraft. It's it's not Lovecraftian in the fact that. It basically, as a concept, didn't exist in his lifetime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not saying it's not Lovecrafting in the spirit of Lovecraft. Sure. Or, you know. So, but where you can kind of go back, and because Lovecraft never says who's playing that music to Eric Zan. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people, you know, you know, speculated it was you know not the or, mm -hmm, or or you know one of the you know the lesser gods, the outer gods. Sure. But you know why couldn't it have been Alalala? Yeah, no, it could be. It could be. Uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, something I was thinking, and I was like, kind of like how in D&D, uh, &D we both like to mythos up our D&D. Our, our &D. I was thinking these would be really awesome creatures to have your characters like have to deal with. And as a reward, then they have like leather of <laughs> the Sogoholo uh, uh, denizens. Um, you know, just like have some sort of like rift and have these like kind of like ostrichy kind of beings kind of come out that, you know, just kind of like hurt you with sound and they're made out of sound, but it's like dense enough sound that once you're done, you can cure it and make leather and then have like gloves that when you punch have a sonic attack or, you know, protect you from sonic damage, stuff like that. And I don't know. I, I is Sonic Damage even a thing anymore in TNT? <laughs> well, I think it is. I think it is. It's kind of a, a rare thing. So, the, you know, you're not going to get a lot of uh, hosts again. But, you know, let's say, you, you know, you've got that that bar to just sat to the, the last three adventures, you yeah. know, being sort of backup healer. And, you know, you want to give them some type of shine. Yeah. Oh, you I... like, like counter, you know, the ca oh, counter spell where he's got to play the song just right at the exact opposite note to nullify it or the, the other characters can't stab it. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no. And denizens of sound and even, uh, Alala, uh, themselves, I figured, like, maybe you could have, like, sonic attacks, like what a bard does, but, like, affects, like, a whole village, like, debuffs a whole village. <laughs> yeah. or, and, you know, so that they can, like, eat the crops or eat the cows or something like that. And then, you know, someone's like, hey, uh, can you attack these things? We're not really sure what they are. They're some kind of monsters that sing at us and then just make us feel, and then they eat all of our stuff and 
you know, then you send your folks out to go take care of it. You could, I don't know, maybe do something like that with Call of Cthulhu, but I'm like thinking the crafting element afterwards that then you're like, yeah, cool. Now I'm less impervious to sound attacks, which don't come across that often, which, you know, we both said. And the thing that I like about sonic attacks is generally your party isn't ready for a sonic attack. If you don't mention something about sound, they're not going to think about it. They're not going to think to stuff stuff in their ears. They're not going to be like, uh, I don't know, let's wear padded armor because that'll help against sound better than our metal armor. <laughs> don't let them know about it. Trick them so you can hurt them first and then they have to come up with stuff. <laughs> just like giant wasps no one's expecting giant wasps <laughs> or or you know it, it, they attack oh we weren't too damaged but you know that entire bag of diamonds we had they're, now they're all cracked and they're only worth about a third of the gold oh yeah 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 there's a ton of stuff you could do with uh sound monsters um there's actually no i, I don't want to lie there's not a ton that you can do with sound monsters but there's a fair amount that you could do with sound monsters maybe uh you have some sort of crime boss in the 1920s who's torturing people with some sort of weird sound thing and you know that's what kicks off the adventure it's like you you know someone finds out about it you need to go out and uh Go find out what it is. You find it. Uh, then you have another problem. Uh, maybe the thing escapes, and then you have to like go chase uh, some some sound emitting creature that's like I don't know all the sound that it's absorbing and eating in like 1920s, 30s Chicago, New York is making it grow immensely, and it's able to attack with sounds that it hears. So you know maybe your team then has to defend itself against some sort of sound creature that can like hurt you with uh, the sounds the sounds of your own city i don't know just <laughs> hey oh, oh. we're getting back into like aclo uh uh things that can hurt you like sounds that can hurt you <laughs> or you let's say you got like a uh this evil sort of black metal band and they've captured this this sort of sound being and they're Ooh. using them they're using them as a um you know a, an amplifier oh wow yeah and the, the creature is not evil, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. designed to be in this dimension. So this whole dimension with its weird angles and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. thing is, is like slowly driving it crazy. Yeah. So you got to fight, you know, you got to defeat the 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 wizard uh, hair metal band, and yeah. then then you got to figure out a way to free this poor sound creature before it destroys everything just because it goes insane. Oh yeah. That's a pretty cool idea. So, yeah, no, I think there's a lot of ideas. And I think there's a lot of fresh ideas with the sound, whether it be Call of Cthulhu, D&D, uh, &D, or, you know, even, say, a sci-fi game. Mm -hmm. Because who's to say, you know, that on other planets, the creatures aren't made of sound? Yeah. <laughs> true, true. Hey, up next, we have a... Uh interview with uh who, who are we talking to uh this week david to uh a crafter but also a published author dominique lamesis and she will be talking about we'll talk a little bit about the king of yellow cool but mainly in uh the book or short story 
Repairer of Reputations. Ooh. Hey, I recently picked up the uh, King in Yellow, or, or is it, yeah, King in Yellow, annotated by Ken Height. I, I picked up a PDF of it because finding a uh, hardback or paperback is almost impossible. And, oh, man, it is informative. It was part of this uh, bundle of holding that I don't think is available anymore. But, yeah, no, no, it was pretty good, pretty good. I highly recommend if you can track down uh, the the Ken Height annotated King in Yellow collection it's 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 amazing and uh after after uh, you talk to dominique uh you've got something that you're talking about yeah so it's very very at the most tangential to, to the mythos okay this is a 1960s teleplay uh that was broadcast in england okay called the year of the sex olympics okay basically kind of pre- Dicks, what we would become um, reality TV is is uh, is it okay for families to listen to this part, Dave, or 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 uh, is this? So there's there's you may have to explain what a word or two means to <laughs> under thirteen year olds, but, but but nothing explicit. Like yeah, it's surprising. Well, English TV, even in the sixties was a little bit more risque than public TV in America. That's not saying much. much. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's... Um, um, oh, it was written by uh, Nigel Deal. Okay. Who is more famous, probably the people listening here, as the creator of Quatermoss. Oh, cool. And so in that way, since Quatermoss is tangentially related to... Um, uh, uh, Call um, the mythos, then. Then I guess the the uh, the summer of the Sex Olympics is also related. Okay, sure. <laughs> we can play that game. All right, cool, everyone. Uh, so check out that after the break, and then after that break, after uh, that last part, we will have part seven. I think it's called Other Tornadoes. Or we start getting into hurricanes, I'm not quite sure, of natural disasters and other horrors. And if you have heard the last few episodes, oh man, it's it's very flowery in speech. And it, it doesn't get too terribly gory, but it is intense to listen to. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to, check out the uh, book that we're listening to this month and probably next month. Uh, at the end of this episode, and then also I generally try and put them out on Monday or Tuesday, the book club episodes. All right, so we'll see you after that. Be there or be square. Do you like the TV series Tales from the Crypt? Are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from Tales from the Crypt? This podcast is for you. The Good Evening Kitties podcast, where I, Melissa, your ghostess with the mostest, recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews. The Good Evening Kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms. Check it out today. So we are welcome. I want to say welcome back to Radio Free Oleander, but uh, I guess we have now changed our name and we are the People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos. Now, 
if you are the type of people like me that miss your pets and you've left this on so that your pets and your goldfish and your cats are feeling won't feel lonely while you're at work, it's okay. They don't have to be people to listen to this. So we encourage you to let your cats listen to this unless they start giving you the evil eye when you get back because they learned all about the Cthulhu mythos. And I am so excited today because we have um, I just one of uh, a really good friend and who um, is extremely talented, and that is Dominique Lemesis. And I just butchered your last name like I butchered everybody's last name, haven't I? Yeah, you did, but it's okay. It's Lemesis. Okay. Lemesis, thank you. I just I. Thank you very much. I cannot pronounce last names. <laughs> so, so you still are a really good friend, and I would love everybody else to know a little bit more about you. So, if you can share, please. Sure. Uh, hi, everybody, and thanks, Dave, for having me. Uh, I, like you said, my name is Dominique Clamsies. Um, I am a writer who is local to the Portland area. I've had some pieces um, online in the horror zine and the non-binary review, um, including the King in Yellow issue, which is pertinent to what we will be discussing. Um, I also have an Etsy shop called House of Silent Graves, um, where my specialty is recreating and plush form the dumbest looking monsters from old sci-fi and horror movies uh, you could possibly think of. I am also a blogger at uh, the University of the Bazaar over at WordPress, where basically I um, overanalyze J-horror, talk about dead people a lot, and talk about Ingrid Pitt's boobs, like, a lot. The three staffs of life. <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> so, 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 before we get into King of Yellow, a couple of things I want to say. But can I tell you my favorite Ingrid Pitt boob story? Yes, I want to hear your favorite anger pit boob story. So, I want to hear one everybody's them, favorite anger pit boob story. It, it, it's probably the same one. It's over and over. But in one of the movies, the the dentures, the vampire teeth, fell out and got stuck in between her her breast. Okay, that was not her. That's the vampire lovers. Oh, okay. Um, one of her fangs fell out and fell into um, it fell into Kate Omar's boobs. She pulled it out a couple times, and the problem was it made Kate O'Mara laugh. And she's one of those actresses that when she starts laughing, she can't stop. And it annoyed Ingrid so much that she actually went over to one of the cameramen who was chewing gum, grabbed the gum out of his mouth, and used it to affix the fang to her, <laughs> to her teeth so they could finish the scene. So, so now it's even a more favorite story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's Ingrid. It's going to be awesome. So. Yes. The, the other is, as I actually have two of these uh, of your uh, Etsy creations, and you made for the last time, not this year, because unfortunately uh, COVID, uh, we had the last time we had the uh, Lovecraft Film Festival, they were showing the movie Tingler, and you made this sort of sky blue. T we all got our Tinglers, and you made a sky blue Tingler for me, and. Uh, in the last year, just my my nephew was just having such a I can't remember what it was, but he was just everything was going bad so for him. And I think he was 11 at the time. So he got that tingler. So he still has the tingler. So I, I gave it to him to cheer him up. And it did. That's awesome. 
And the other yeah, is, I have is, uh, uh, I'm a hop tip, which is a, a bunny, um, a mummy bunny. And he has sat on my desk next to my computer for so long, but uh, my desk is now a mess and it ran out of space. So he's now sitting next to my Star Wars books. So, you know, he, you know, he's a, I think it's a great item if it's, if it's taking space with my Star Wars books. <laughs> a high honor, yeah. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about um, Hoster, the King of Yellow, and especially uh, the repair of reputations. Yes, which in my opinion is the, the ultimate King in Yellow story. So n- not the yellow sign, just for the record. Okay, and, and and not not the first uh, Hosser story, because he was actually created by one of my favorite authors, mm-hmm. Ambrose Bierce, for uh, for Mita uh, um, the Shepherd. Yeah, which um, I still don't know how to say that name. Haiti. Haida. Yeah. Okay. Ambrose Bierce took the secret to the grave with him. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. A lot of people did that with mythos names. Yeah. So wh- why is why do you think and this is probably an open-ended question, but why <laughs> is the repairer of reputations such the ultimate king and yellow story? Well, I think it stems from two things. Um first of all, even though it is an unreliable narrator and like the ultimate unreliable narrator, um, especially because like there's certain details in this, in this particular story that come up in other stories as being deliberately wrong. Um, because it is that unreliable narrator, it does the most world building in my opinion, because the King in yellow ultimately is psychological yes it's um because the way i think about it is because because of uh the xenophobia and the racism with lovecraft things are very much the bad things are outside you and they are attacking you and trying to change you whereas chambers was in the king in yellow pretty much the dichotomous opposite what is wrong is already inside you and it's just waiting for that trigger to let it go and it might be a head injury because you fall off your horse or it might be the king in yellow but you're primed to pop as it were okay excellent um yeah and i i do it's sort of i i do sense it's i think i think i know you've read it more because i've read it maybe twice or so i bet that you know a lot more or had a lot better understanding because sometimes I read things and I go, I just scratch my head. Mm-hmm. But as this unreliable narrator, I got this impression he believed it with all his heart. Oh, he actually believed it. Cause there's a first, the, the, the first two pages, if you just read the first two pages, there is enough st- stupidly specific detail in there to make you think it's real because nobody would sit and think up all that dumb stuff unless you are absolutely crazy. So he's sort of giving us a, a, a view into his world, even though 
it's unreliable. Well, he's giving us a view into the world he wants. This is the world he, because remember, he believes that he is the destined king. This is the world that he wants to rule. This is the world that he wants to make. And this is because essentially you can look at the repairer of reputations. If you go again, go through the first two pages and sit and outline everything he says about the world. He's a fascist. Okay. He's, he's an authoritarian. He's a fascist and he wants to rule the world that way. I mean, it's freaky, especially reading it nowadays, because a lot of the stuff sounded a lot like the Nazis. Yes. And uh, some other periods of time that are like more recently maybe yes. i shouldn't say but one thing is yes it seems to me that there is this huge business of people who do terrible things get in politics and now they need people to repair their reputations exactly and that's one of the other things i love about it is just a repairer of reputations he's a blackmailer that's what Mr. Wild is. He's a blackmailer. That's all he is. Let's say that maybe somebody, and, and I realize we don't want we don't want to spoil a, a what a hundred and ten year old story. We don't like too many spoilers. But okay. uh, for in case there are people here that maybe aren't as familiar with the story, uh, definitely as you are. What are some uh, maybe some highlights that we can give them? Okay, so. In the repair of reputations as a story, it is um, told in the first person um, by a man named Hildred Castain. Now, Castain was very much a dilettante. He liked to go out and hang out with his buddies and ride horses and fish and all that outdoorsy kind of stuff. And then one day he fell from his horse and he got a head injury. And while he was recuperating from his head injury, he got a hold of a play called The King in Yellow. Now, the king in yellow has been actively and vehemently suppressed by every government and every institution in the entire world because it screws people up, like, badly. Um, and it's with the help of a really crazy guy named Mr. Wild. Castain attempts to gain what he... he he sees as his birthright of being the ruler of the imperial dynasty of America, which descends from the mythical kings of Carcosa. As, of as, we, teach, as we teach in first grade. Exactly. <laughs> but also because the thing, one of the things about the king in yellow that I think kind of is off-putting for people is that it's super dense in detail. Because if you kind of know something about history and are willing to actually pick apart the details, that's the the things that kind of um, feed feed off the insanity. Like there there's a there's a mention of at one point he talks Castain talks about how um, there was a, a there's apparently a statue of Garibaldi in New York. I've never been to New York. I don't know, but Garibaldi was one of the guys who went over Italy, like putting the people in charge and stuff. And it was replaced. And I believe he also did some revolutionary work in South America too, in like the 1890s. Okay, there you go. I, but yeah, he was, oh, was a revolutionary. Oh, go on. I'm sorry. I just remember okay. the the one, and, and this is, I remember the one, revo, the Garibaldi story from history class. Mm -hmm. 
uh, when me and my friend, we were in history and the book was Garibaldi, I guess, gets shot in his neck and his wife heals him. Our history book was so badly written. And this was before we had the Internet. We could look things up. Me and my friend got into this sort of you know, friendly argument. Did Garibaldi get shot in the neck or did his wife get shot in the neck? <laughs> and we had to go to the teacher and say, which who got shot in the neck? For those of you that are about to take a history class, Garibaldi got shot in the neck, not his wife. <laughs> okay. Sorry, that was just completely off topic, but I just brought that story back. No worries. That's fine. But the he talks about the statue of Garibaldi, which he describes as a monstrosity, being torn down and replaced by a statue of uh, Peter Stuyvesant, which I'm pretty sure I screwed that name up. Um, but he was the first um, Dutch head of the New York colony when the Dutch first came there. And he was hardcore one of those, like, you're poor because God hates you. You need to know your place. I'm in charge because I'm I'm rich and I'm noble. One of those kind of guys. So that's the people we're celebrating in his head. And there's a lot of just little, little details like that. Things like he talks so much about the military. Everything is military. There's military parades. There's people running around and fighting. At the time, right up to World War One, I, I mean, there were constant wars. Everything was about the military. Your, the military was was the glory. The military was how you proved yourself. Um, there's constant mentions of, of imperialism, uh, which again was it, it was the cause of World War One. I. I mean, one of them. There were a lot, but it was one of the big causes. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things I found really interesting was they talks about. Suwannee, which is the the uh, country that all the black people in America were sent to, which near as I can tell is I think that's a reference to Florida. I think he's saying we sent all the black people to Florida. Yes, and almost like a, a reservation type situation. Yeah. Um, but there's also but that has the seeds of national ethnic self determination, yes. which was a huge thing at that time. So, you know, you this, I mean, it, it's simplistic to say all black people are from, you know, Africa, which is one big country. So you go and have one country. But anyway, and, you know, checking immigration, things like that, all the things that led up to World War One. I, I mean, Castaigne is functioning as one of the kings of Europe pre-World War One that led to World War One, essentially. And he's proud of it. And it, well, of course he's proud of it. They were all proud of it, and it was their God-given right. And it's interesting that Castaigne had an injury and was crazy. When this is the period where all the rulers are related to each other and inbred, and I mean, you you were crazy because you were inbred. Thank you, Dominique and Dave, for that. Unfortunately, that was all the audio that we had. So. That's what we have. So up next, uh, Dave talking about the year of the Sex Olympics, and hopefully we'll get Dominique back on to talk more about the King in Yellow repair of reputations. But as I said, that was all the audio I had, unfortunately. If I find more, I'll put the second half up. But until then, uh, here's Dave.
this is David, and welcome to Dave's Corner of the Podcast, and I hope that you are doing well. And that is one of my trusty sidekicks, Ralph the Rooster, and he is hoping that you are doing well too. It's also a reminder that some of you who have heard other versions of this show know that we are actually do record on a working farm so you never know when you may hear actual farm noises. <laughs> and that is the twins, Solomon and Sonia, my two little goat babies. Now, as we sort of condense into the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, this is a reminder that you don't have to be a people to listen to this. You can be a rooster or a goat or a... Migo. Um, so don't actually have to be a person. And we aren't necessarily always going to be talking about the Cthulhu mythos and Howard Phillips Lovecraft. In fact, today what I'm talking about is only connected to the mythos most tangentially. And that is today we are talking about the year of the sex Olympics. So many of you are wondering right now, what is the year of the sex Olympics? And those of you who know are wondering, what does this have anything to do with the Cthulhu mythos? And the answer is, at least to the second question, Nigel Neal. So let me talk a little bit about the creator before I talk about his creation. Nigel Neal is best known for creating the Quatermass trilogy, which is basically Doctor Who before Doctor Who. If Doctor Who was a cantankerous English space scientist, he basically created or set things in motion for what we consider British science fiction. But he's also sort of the person who injected the horror element into British science fiction. One of the things many of us say, and again, I'm going to use Doctor Who as an example because most people are familiar with that, had a very scary horror effect, especially like the 70s, you know, uh, Fourth Doctor, but even the later ones. There's definitely horror in that science fiction. And Neil in Quatermass injected not only horror, but cosmic Lovecraftian horror. So that's our connection between the year of the Sex Olympics and H.P. Lovecraft. And, and Neil is basically the only collection. This is much more pre-cyberpunk than horror, although there are truly some horrific aspects in this show, especially when it comes towards the end. I explain Nigel Neal to people who are not familiar with him. He's kind of the English Rod Serling uh, in a lot of ways. In one way that Serling is this master storyteller, Neal is too. In fact, I would put them up on par. And that's, I hold Serling really high. So if he's up there with Serling, you know I think he's a good writer. And they would often fill the same niche. Uh, 
Serling in American TV and Neil in British TV, in which they would do what was in the 60s teleplays, which are sort of short one-shot movies. They also did anthologies, um, and they were basically writing the same type of things at the same time, although uh, Rod Serling definitely, I think, goes much more into fantasy, horror, and science fiction. So uh, Nigel um, Neal did, among other things, he did the, as far as I'm concerned, the gold standard of 1984 when he did this as a, a, a teleplay. And this bought him a lot of cred, and it allowed him to produce this sort of, I don't want to say vanity project, but this uh, teleplay, the year of the Sex Olympics. So what is the year of the Sex Olympics? Let me start off with saying what it's not. It's not porn. This is a social satire set in the future um, and was aired in 1968. And sex and sexuality and the way that society views sexuality and the, the way that corporations and governments use sex as a tool and as an advertising is this main theme and trope in the story. But Neil, being this genius that he is, he presents it in many ways as the most unsexy way he can. So it's not porn, it's not titillation, even though porn and titillation are part of the storyline, he presents it almost as boring. In fact, there's a scene where two producers are, are watching a couple um, have sex off screen, and they are basically describing it the same way two sports producers would describe a football or a rugby or a baseball match. They're commenting on form and technique, but there's no passion, there's no titillation in it. The teleplay's strength and weakness is both its running time, which is, I think, with credits around 104 minutes. So this does a couple things. One, it gives it time to explore things that happen in this world, but it's not enough time. So it parts, it drags on too long, but at other parts, it leaves you scratching. What happened to this society? To Neil's credit, he does the best that he can to explain this brand new world that that if an audience member is paying attention, not to these sort of background silhouette dancers or, or full screen TV couples in the background, you're paying to the attention to the main characters, you can pretty much patch together what happened to the world. But he never spoon feeds the audience. So the teleplay was released in 1968 on a show called 625 Theater. 625 was a format 
that was in 1968, very advanced TV format. In fact, when you watch it now, it's not in a rectangular format, it's in a square format. And there were 625 lines to give you the best picture at the time. So it was kind of the 4K of 1968. And though the show definitely is not pornography, there's at least one scene where a nipple could be seen. English TV, even back then, was much more comfortable with naked female bodies than their uh, puritanical American counterparts. But it, it's one of those really quick. It's only there like four or five seconds, and, and it's basically in the background of a setting. And so I would say I could imagine somebody going out and buying this brand new expensive 625 TV just to see, you know, this one half nipple in this one scene. Now, the movie that we have now is in black and white. It was shot in color. But like so many other things, including, uh, you know, original Avengers, uh, Doctor Who, that the BBC basically recorded over the color version. All that survived was a black and white proof. And that's what we have now. That's what we see now. Um, I've seen like the opening credits in color. And so the movie, the, the men walk around in these sort of paisley jumpsuits that have sort of a, a kilt on the end. And I've seen the color pictures. And, and the women have this thick gold makeup painted on them. And the color is completely lost. Um, to best of my knowledge, it's not worth it to anyone to do a colorization version on the black and white print. And this kind of adds to the the retro side, but it also kind of it documents it documents the artifact. It's a very we see this as a very '60s product because, like Twilight Zone, it's in black and white even though originally it was done in color. So the world building is a very dystopian society and very much, I think, like later 80s cyberpunk with a, a 60s feel to it. There is war, there is famine, there is overpopulation. And so the world pretty much destroys most of itself and those that survive rebuild. And there is this city-state called Output. And, and let's be frank, at least for me looking at it, Output is the BBC. And it is their job to basically broadcast. So there's two classes of people. There is the high drives, which are the elite, and the low drives that are the unwashed masses. And it's Output's job to entertain the low drives that live away from Output, the city, in a way that keeps them occupied, keeps them from rioting. It is the job to provide bread and circuses. And any part of language that does not help them send this message to the low drives is basically forgotten. So words like 
painting, censor, dinosaur. People have forgotten what that means. And they talk in this almost clockwork orange drug speech where they eliminate verbs and adverbs. I go store, you know, and that's considered educated to them. That That's the way the elite speak. It's quick. It's fast. It doesn't need any details. It's And that part is not spelled out. It's just the way it's spoken. Again, when I was younger and I was watching, you know, in the 80s, I was watching the fourth Doctor Who. It took a minute or two of listening to them each week to get to where I understood what they were saying. It takes even longer here because you've got this English accent, but you've also got this drug speech. But even the parts that are not really... When it starts, you get the idea. Even if you don't understand the words, you get what he's saying. And that, again, is to Nigel Neal's brilliance and his control of the language and the control of the story. Setting, you know, I've heard a lot of people badmouth the setting here. But to be honest, for play, I think it's pretty good. Um... Yeah, it's low-quality Twilight Zone, but it adds sort of to the camp. So, basically, the main character is Matt, and he's the producer of Sports Sex, which is different from Art Sex, which is, this is the channel where people watch to see the physicality of sex. The whole idea is that with overpopulation, we will show all these people sex, and yes, it might inspire them, but basically they want it to become sort of a to watch, not to do. And so the masses get wrapped up on this and distracted in the same way that they do in sports. And yes, they kind of maybe engage in intercourse, but they're not, they realize that they're not these professional level athletes. And so Yes, people have dreams of getting into the Sex Olympics, and it's hyped throughout the show, but you never see it because it's this year-long activity. Um, they kind of lose interest. And in a ways, with their mantra of watch, don't do, it becomes a way of birth control. Matt and a girl named Demi have a child. And again, it's controlled. It's implied at about 15 to 16 they are given, when they are together, the state gives them permission to have a child. They don't raise. Demi visits quite maybe once a month, and Matt, and this is, they were together 45 girls, you know, later for Matt. His relationships are worked out, work out like less than two months a, a, a relationship, and that's considered pretty good. But he almost never sees his daughter. And then there's this concern because they are high drive and she's testing low drive. So they go and they, doctors suggest, and they go and they meet her. And, and there are things such as viruses, and she had a virus, but it's very rare. And when you meet her, she's shy, she's nervous, but she's obviously intelligent. She's She doesn't seem... 
It's not intelligence. It's that she doesn't seem to fit this mold of who the high drive people are. And Matt is terribly, terribly shocked because, you know, it's going to affect his career. He, he produced a, a low drive child who's going to be set out among the masses. At first, it really bothers him how it's going to affect him. But as he starts to get to know his daughter, he begins to really care about what's going to happen to her. Now, Dee's new boyfriend is an artist in a way that they don't even, society's even ruled out the word painting. And the closest job that they could suggest to him is, you know, he does the patterns in between the shows, like the old test patterns. But he does art not to pacify, art to make people feel something, even if it's pain. And his big work, it almost looks like H.P. Lovecraft as a zombie. So that's the second mythos contact here. And he he flashes this on the network that he works for, Art Sex. And it's this big scandal. And because he had shown it to Matt and it had moved Matt, he could get caught up. But, you know, his, his, his producers sort of protect him. So in an attempt to make people feel things, the, the, the ex-boy or the boyfriend basically breaks into the sound set of sports sex and he climbs up a rope and shows this picture it looks like zombie Lovecraft. He's chased by security, he falls and he dies. And all of a sudden, the audience, these millions and millions of passive people are moved by it. And so the network, run by this giant computer, basically says, okay, we're going to, going to show them, we're going to show them people getting hurt. The thought behind this is that people can take conflict and tension when it's not happening to them. So Matt and Demi and their daughter are basically going to go to, well, they're going to be survivor. They're going to be sent to the Isle of Man, which is where Nigel Neal grew up. Basically, this is the part that people remember the most and comment the most. He is predicting reality TV, where they have these hidden cameras and these people who have lived in this perfect society are now have to endure these elements and how to survive. And so they have tape recordings that tell them how to light fires and to kill sheep. But the tape recordings are going to be erased in two weeks. And so they're supposed to be the only three people on the island. And all throughout are these hidden cameras so that people are watching them 24 hours in a reality-like show. Well, the studio output pulls a trick, and they make sure that there is a sociopath that is also on the island because their plan is to make Matt and his family discover pain and to feel despair. And this way, the audience can experience it vicariously get high ratings, and go be pacified that they saw this pain 
and despair on someone else. It wasn't happening to them. So this is definitely a two-act play. And the first half taking place in output, the second place taking place in the Isle of Man. It is dark, bitter satire, too. And, and without giving any real spoilers, Neil takes the script down some very dark paths. He does it very skillfully, but there are some very dark things towards the end. And if you're not comfortable with that, then this probably isn't a story for you. The last half is the part that is best remembered. And the fact that, you know, when they re-ran the show in 2003 on BBC4, you know, people crying, see, he predicted reality TV. Absolutely did. He satirizes reality TV 40 years before it's a thing. That said, the part that I liked the best was the first half. I liked seeing this 60s, you know, use drugs while you're at work. You know, I loved seeing this society of output. And I think that was the much more interesting half to me. That said, and I'm running out of time here, but if you are interested in watching the year of the Sex Olympics, you can. It is on Amazon Prime. You do have to pay an additional for it. It's two ninety nine. Uh, you can buy it, I think, for seven ninety nine and watch it over and over. Um, if you do, you're only going to want to, to over and over. I think you can see all these little hidden gems that the in the dialogue and in the story in the society that Neil hid. Like I said, I don't. It's it's a it's got a dark ending. Um, so if you're into that, hey, great. You're, you're going to get exactly what you want. But if you're not, yeah, your mileage may vary. But it's worth a view to sort of see what people in the late 60s thought that television could have been and how influential it would be in, in what is basically now. So, hey, uh, my time is up, and this is Dave, and here is Ralph the Rooster, and he's going to give you his review. Three cock-a-doodle-doos out of five, with special emphasis in the fact that it is a story about a sexually charged society, really not about sex, great writing, Great kernels of idea and world building by Nigel Neal, but that it does have sort of a whiplash effect at the end when it goes away from society with a dark ending. So if that's what you like, I'll recommend it. And so does Ralph the Rooster. <laughs> Hey Dave, how are you doing after that 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 pretty sizable break? I like those uh both 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 of those things. Those 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 were great. Uh, 
I am still well. Yeah, good, 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 good. All right. Well, we this this is the tail end of the show. Since we front loaded the show with D and D on D and D, we don't have anything to talk about at the end of the show except for, uh, hey, this is a good time for you to talk about what kind of conventions uh, we've got coming up in the next couple months. You said something about Rose City Comic Con. Yeah, so we're definitely for Rose City Comic Con. Yeah. A couple of things that we're doing mm-hmm. is one is Star Wars, geekier than you think. And that's going to go in a deep dive in some of the more stranger, obscure um, aspects of Star Wars. So maybe some of the uh, trivia, uh, some of the uh, stuff that came out through the, the games, especially. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, West End Games D6. Very cool. Uh, and we'll also be doing a panel on uh, Joseph Campbell and his monomyth. Ooh, very cool. Very and, cool. And fantasy. Yeah, I'll, I'll wear a fancy suit. And also, we're probably going to be uh, at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be at the Portland Horror Festival, but I know that we're going to be at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. We'll probably be on panels. If not, we will be around and we'll have little things on that show that we're not guests. Uh, no, that, no, no, we're guests. We're not vendors. So if if we have little placards on, we're we're guests, not vendors. So we don't have anything to sell. And, you know, we're not, I don't know. <laughs> we're, we're we're just there for for to be on panels and watch the cool movies and listen to other people on panels and talk to our friends who are artists and just kind of hang out at Sam's Billiards. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I I have not researched it, but maybe something we can talk maybe just a couple of minutes uh, next week Ooh. is apparently this all takes place in the Hollywood Theater. <laughs> Which is on Portland, but apparently there's a rash of ghost sightings in the Hollywood theater. Crazy stuff, crazy stuff. We're going to have to talk about that sometime in the future. Everyone, thank you so much for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. This has been your other host, Farmer Dave. Dave, say goodbye to everybody. Bye, everybody. You can rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about the show, Check out the show notes to find out how to help out the show, get a cool t-shirt, find out how you can get a cool sticker by joining us on Patreon. And I can't think of anything else. Oh, yeah, we've got a PayPal link if you wanted to just, like, send us, I don't know, money so that uh, we can have a cool hang zone time now that the pandemic's over and Dave and I can actually sit down and write some stuff out. You know, have a have a proper meeting for once. But, yeah, uh and Dave, anything, uh, anything else you want to tell the folks before we take off uh, into the into the night? No, but we'll be here next week. All right, that's the plan. All right, we'll see you next time, everyone. And hey, if you find out about this show from one of these conventions, one of these film festivals that we've talked about, you're listening in the future, and you go, "Hey, that's when I found out about the show. That's when I got that sticker or pen. That's 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 when that guy in that suit bugged me, and that that other guy was really nice. You know, you, you can be like, "Hey, write us, tell us about it. Join us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we've got all that stuff up and running again, and it's looking good. So join us, 
Join us next week. Join us in the future. People's because Guide the to the Cthulhu Mythos for 100 years. Live. What's that? Because in the future is where we're all going to spend our lives. Yes. <laughs> That's very true. It's very true. We'll see you next time, everyone. Sorry, I didn't mean to step over your, your comments with my Criswell impersonation. Oh, no, 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 no. The Criswell impersonation was awesome. Um, I'm, I'm leaving this part in, so do you want to say goodbye to everyone? Oh, goodbye, everybody. Or as Criswell would say, I will see you in the future. <laughs> That's how I sign off on the phone. <laughs> Everyone, we'll see you in the future. Nope. Come on, stop. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about it, gain powerful allies, um... I don't know. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And this is uh, the day that I'm editing, and it's going to be up soon. I've been sick. I, I got really, really, really sick, everyone. I pretty much didn't eat for several days and laid on a couch uh, with two buckets next to me. Um, I won't tell you what was in them. Uh, popcorn and peanuts. And <laughs> I was sick. I couldn't move. I watched uh, a lot of YouTube through uh, Medicine Haze. And, uh, yeah, I, I, like, oh, goodness, it was rough. It was rough. But we've got this to you, and we'll get more to you sooner than later. So thank you again for listening, and we hope to hear from you soon. And thank you for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. And up next we have, I believe, we're going to be talking about hurricanes, and it's going to be part eight and not part seven, because I put up part seven before I became too terribly sick so that we'd at least have something. Cause when I had a hundred degree temperature, I was like, Oh no, I got to do this. So I pounded out a quick episode and threw it up for everyone. And I hope you enjoyed it. If not, Hey, um, here's this episode and I hope you enjoy it. And if not, I don't know what to say. All right. Peace be with you. Uh, see you in the future. Um, all that good stuff. I'll probably say goodbye one more time just to let you know that I'm here for you. Thank you. Rate, review, subscribe. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. Just look for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Recording by Warren Cotty, Gurney, Illinois. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godbay. Chapter 8. Tropical Cyclones. The storm is on his way. With a lightning sword and a thunder shout, and his robe on the night wind floating out, the storm is on his way. The storm is on his way. He smites, and the death-swept valleys groan. The ocean rise, and the forests moan. The storm is on his way. The preceding pages show only the destructive power of the small tornadoes of our land. We are fortunate in that the great cyclone is, comparatively, a rare visitor among us. A moment's consideration of this ravager, as he appears in the tropics, will show how trifling are the storms that have swept over our own land. A few examples will convince the most skeptical. Of the great cyclones which have traversed our country in recent times, we may mention the hurricane of October 21 through 24, 1878. General Greeley says, 
It first damaged buildings and sank vessels at Havana. It entered the United States near Wilmington, North Carolina, and moving due north, passed over Washington and eastern Pennsylvania, after which it curved eastward, and crossing New England, left the coast near Portland, Maine. In Philadelphia, over 700 substantial buildings were totally destroyed or seriously damaged, bridges injured, 22 vessels sunk, several persons injured, and eight killed, entailing a loss variously estimated from one to two millions of dollars. Other loss of life and great damage by freshets and winds occurred elsewhere in Pennsylvania. A large number of steamers, ships, and coasting vessels were dismantled, wrecked or sunk along the New Jersey, Virginia, and North Carolina coasts, entailing loss of life and enormous pecuniary damage. The wind reached 72 miles per hour at Philadelphia and 88 along the coast. Another cyclone the next year ruined 100 large vessels and 200 yachts and smacks. Another, in 1881, destroyed 400 persons along the Carolina coasts and damaged property to the extent of $1.6 million. But these are exceeded by the great Nova Scotia cyclone of 1873. The property damage alone is estimated at nearly $5 million. The Signal Service report says that 1,032 ships, of which 435 were small fishing schooners, are known to have been destroyed during the 24th and 25th of August in the neighborhood of the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the Atlantic shores of Nova Scotia, Cape Breton, and Newfoundland. On the other hand, over 190 vessels were destroyed by this hurricane in its passage over the ocean before it reached Nova Scotia, making a grand total of at least 1,223 vessels destroyed within a few days by its power. 223 lives are definitely reported to be lost, and the moderate estimate of the numerous cases in which whole crews have been lost swells this number to nearly 500. And if to this is added the loss of life on land and the loss in the earlier history of the cyclone, the grand total amounts to at least 600 lives. Had the famed Shah Jihan ever visited the West Indies, it is probable that he might have pronounced many of its lovely islets fit rivals for that beautiful creation of his fancy, which bore above the gateway. If there be paradise upon the earth, this it is, this it is, this it is. Among the loveliest groups are the beautiful Virgin Isles, and loveliest of these is the famed island of St. Thomas. A lofty mountain girdles the island leaving an opening between two hills into a wide oval harbor, while the pretty little town lies around the inner side of the port, sloping up the mountain behind, the queen of a vast natural amphitheater. Such a fine harbor has rendered St. Thomas almost the mistress of West Indian commerce, and one would not suspect, in looking at the sunny slopes and green-clad ranges around the Azure Harbor, that in this region is the birthplace of the Storm King. Yet not a spot on earth has been more frequently visited by great cyclones. One of the most notable of its visitations during this century occurred August 2, 1837. The barometer fell rapidly during the forenoon, and by noon the storm began. 
in a short time it increased to a tremendous gale at about three o'clock the wind suddenly ceased in a few moments it blew from the other direction roaring and rolling black clouds before it raising up immense sea waves covering the island with intense gloom six hours it blew ever increasing tiles and slates whizzed through the air to be shattered on the rocks or driven into timbers great trees were whirled about often dashing away houses that seemed about to weather the storm while the terrible roar of the wind was such that even the crash of the thunder could hardly be distinguished one authority tells us that the great guns at the fort were blown through the air and tossed about the beach like chaff this must be taken with allowance it is more probable that the great guns on the beach were washed up from the wrecks of some old pirate vessels or ships of war about ten p m there was a slight cessation of the storm and the people were congratulating themselves that the worst was over when there came a violent earthquake which laid in ruins almost everything that was left the wreck took fire in two or three places at once the hurricane began with renewed vigor and ere the wretched people had fully comprehended the magnitude of the calamity the whole ruined town was a sea of flame buffeted by the wind blinded by the smoke and the pelting spray whirled up from the raging sea the people ran for the slopes of the hills the light of the funeral pyre of their hopes and labors rendering the gloom more horrible and seeming to rival the gleams of tartarus day broke at last the storm was gone the earthquake staggered the miserable folk no longer the warm and brilliant sun of the west indies smiled upon the scene the whole country was strewn with large trees uprooted or snapped off and all plantations were destroyed in the town the fire was dying out and it was only here and there that the ruins were still smoking the hurricane had swept away nearly all the wooden houses those which had been lightly placed upon beams just above the soil being carried off as they stood while the larger ones which had resisted the hurricane were overturned in an instant by the earthquake the whole town was strewn with wrecks that told of the violence of the catastrophe the port so gay and animated the day before was dreary and deserted a few masts here and there emerging from the water while all along the shore and even upon the slope of the hills were scattered wreckage and corpses of sailors while we have noticed only the destruction wrought at st thomas this storm was general throughout the antilles in the bahamas it was less violent they lying on the outskirts of the storm millions of dollars worth of property merchandise vegetation houses and vessels were destroyed and thousands of lives lost thirty years later st thomas again suffered from the combined forces of storm and earthquake and the damage was greater because the earthquake with its sea wave came a few days after the storm as the work of restoration was well under way and so involved a second prostration of the resources of the people moreover the town had grown considerably in thirty years and there was much more valuable property to damage fifteen large steamers and many smaller vessels were driven on the shore by the storm while the sea wave a few days later found the port again filled with vessels of different nations 
it overleaped the sentinel hills at the entrance of the bay and swept with tremendous force upon the city drowning with its terrible roar the despairing cry of the sailors then suddenly retired with the wreck of the city to its dark abyss the batteries of heavy guns at the entrance of the harbor were swept away a few injured vessels wallowed on the waves but most have been swallowed up and left no trace behind while there is always deep sympathy for those who suffer such calamities yet it must remain of the type bestowed upon sufferers in arctic expeditions the character of the climate is well known and the whole matter resolves itself into a question of the risk one is willing to run there is no blind chance in control of these movements the cyclone frequents only certain regions and its habit and power is understood while we pity the sufferers we cannot assert that the scourge is mysterious or unaccountable any more than we find mystery in the fact of eternal snow in the polar world but there have been storms in the west indies far more destructive than either of these or both together one of the most noted of the century is the famous barbados storm of 1831 which an eyewitness thus describes on the morning of the 10th of august the sun rose without a cloud at 10 a.m a breeze that had been blowing died away towards 2 p.m the heat became oppressive at 5 p.m thick clouds appeared in the north rain fell and was succeeded by a sudden stillness and a dismal blackness all around except towards the zenith where there was an obscure circle of imperfect light till 10:30 p.m however there was no sign of change then lightning appeared in the north and very unusual fluctuations of the thermometer were observed all this time the storm was only approaching after midnight the continued flashing of the lightning was awfully grand and a gale blew fiercely from the north and northeast but at 1 a.m on the 11th of august the tempestuous rage of the wind increased as the storm suddenly shifted and burst from the northwest and immediate points the upper regions were illuminated by incessant lightning but the quivering sheet of blaze was surpassed in brilliancy by the darts of electric fire which exploded in every direction at a little after 2 a.m the astounding roar of the hurricane cannot be described by language about three o'clock the wind abated and the lightning ceased for a few moments at a time when the blackness in which the town was enveloped was inexpressibly awful fiery meteors were presently seen falling from the heavens one in particular of a globular form and a deep red hue was observed by the writer to descend perpendicularly from a vast height on approaching the earth it assumed a dazzling whiteness and an elongated form and on reaching the ground splashed around in the same manner as melted metal would have done and was instantly extinct it is evident that the coincidence on this occasion with the day on which the earth is known to pass through the august belt of meteors rendered the effect of this great storm at barbados more striking it is not safe to assert that there was any relation between the phenomena a few minutes after the deafening noise of the wind sank to a solemn murmur or rather a distant roar and the lightning which from midnight had flashed and darted forkedly with but few momentary intermissions now for nearly half a minute played frightfully between the clouds and the earth with novel and surprising action 
the vast body of vapor appeared to touch the houses and issued downward flaming blazes which were nimbly returned from the earth upward the moment after this singular alteration of lightning the hurricane again burst forth from the western points with violence prodigious beyond description hurling before it thousands of missiles the fragments of every unsheltered structure of human art the strongest houses were caused to vibrate from their foundations and the surface of the very earth trembled as the destroyer raged over it no thunder was at any time distinctly heard the horrible roar and yelling of the wind the noise of the ocean whose frightful waves threatened the town with the destruction of all that the other elements might spare the clattering of tiles the falling of floors and walls and the combination of a thousand other sounds formed a hideous and appalling din about five a m the storm abated at six o'clock the wind was at south at seven o'clock southeast at eight o'clock east southeast and at nine o'clock the weather was clear the view from the summit of the cathedral tower a few hours later was frightfully grand the whole face of the country was laid waste no sign of vegetation was apparent except here and there small patches of sickly green the surface of the ground appeared as if fire had run through the land scorching and burning up the productions of the earth the few remaining trees stripped of their boughs and foliage wore a cold and wintry aspect and the numerous seats in the environs of bridgetown formerly concealed among thick groves were now exposed and in ruins one peculiarity noticeable was that in some places trees timbers and many other objects presented a scorched appearance as though subjected to intense heat the reason of this is not clear as unusual heat was not perceptible after the beginning of the storm by anyone it may be that this was produced by unusual quantities of electricity escaping through imperfect conductors for we learn from other phenomena that during this storm there was an unusual state of electrical tension in the atmosphere sparks occasionally leaped from the heads of persons out of doors vast numbers of trees that were not blown down speedily died and it has been suggested that an excess of electricity killed them the total loss in this storm is not definitely known some further idea of its fearful violence may be gathered from the fact that at the north end of barbados the waves broke over a cliff seventy feet high and the salt water spray was carried inland in such quantities as to kill all the freshwater fish in ponds far in the interior as for the tremendous roar of the wind the commanding officer of the thirty-sixth regiment sought protection by getting under the arch of a lower window outside his house he did not hear the roof and upper story of the house fall and only found it out by the dust caused by the fall far more destructive was the great hurricane of seventeen eighty the french and english were at war admiral george rodney was in the west indies with an english fleet in several divisions the french had sent a convoy of five thousand troops to martinique the storm was of immense width extending from trinidad on the extreme southwest to antigua the evening of october ninth was red and lowering by ten o'clock next morning the wind was high 
and by one o'clock vessels in the harbors were dragging their anchors. The water was driven on shore with such force at Barbados that it was four feet deep in the government house. The family took refuge under the cannon, only to find that they were moved about by the wind. By morning not a building in town was standing. Every tree was either blown away or stripped of branches and leaves. The sunny islands were suddenly become as bleak and bare as a Siberian steppe. As to the loss, 10,000 perished at Martinique, 6,000 at Santa Lucia, 4,500 at St. Eustatia, 3,500 at Barbados. Scores of smaller islands were devastated, but the loss in detail is not known. Of the British fleet, the greater part was destroyed. Only one vessel out of 19 at St. Eustatia survived. A score of other ships of war and numerous transports were sunk. Of the French convoy, with 5,000 troops, the governor wrote laconically that it had disappeared. Several English vessels at Barbados were carried far inshore and converted into dwellings. Doubtless, 50,000 would hardly be too great an estimate of the total loss of life in this storm. In a similar one in 1813, the hurricane drove back the Gulf Stream, piling up the water 30 feet deep in the Gulf of Mexico. The ship Ledbury Snow endeavored to ride out the storm, and when it was over, found herself high and dry. She had let go her anchor among the treetops of Elliot's Key. The Barbados region suffered another severe gale in 1782, when the prizes captured by Admiral Rodney were sunk. A number of merchant vessels and two English warships foundered, and 3,000 lives were lost at sea alone. The temperate zone has its occasional hurricanes, though they are by no means as powerful or as frequent as those of the tropics. It is stated that in the year 944, 1,500 houses were destroyed by a tempest in London. In the year 1090, it is recorded that a violent storm overturned 606 houses in London alone. Terrible as is the destruction of the cyclone in the Western world, its fury here cannot give a fair idea of the awful havoc it makes in Oriental regions. All through the Malay archipelago, along the coasts of China, Japan, the Philippines, Hindustan, and farther India, the ravages of the Storm King have been appalling, far exceeding even the terrible hurricanes of the West Indies. Hindustan affords peculiar facilities for destructiveness of cyclones. Both its great rivers flow, for the latter part of their course, through low alluvial plains, and their deltas extend into the ocean directly toward the region of monsoons, so that a hurricane may send a great tidal wave up the river, while the low rich plains for miles around are but few feet above tidewater, and teem with a population attracted by the amazing fertility. So a sudden great storm may totally submerge, without any warning, hundreds of square miles of these fertile tracts, with all their inhabitants. Even when the sea wave is not added to the horrors of the storm, the losses are fearful. A cyclone at Calcutta in 1867 destroyed 30,000 houses, wrecked or sunk 600 ships and smaller vessels in the river, and killed 10,000 persons in the city alone. 
when to this is added the havoc committed by the storm one hundred miles wide in the rural districts as it traveled on toward the foothills it is clear that every reader may be devoutly thankful that such terrible visitants are altogether unknown in our land terrible as this storm was there was a greater one on the fifth of october eighteen sixty four about one hundred ships were lost and over sixty thousand persons perished forty three thousand in calcutta alone it was accompanied by a bore on the hoogly the water rising thirty feet which is ten feet higher than the highest spring tides whole towns were nearly destroyed it indicated its approach for several days and captain watson of the clarence seeing the barometer falling knew a cyclone was approaching and saved his ship by steering out of its range compare this with the storms of our own land that thrill the country with horror if but one hundred people are killed and remember that the cyclone of india destroyed six hundred lives where one was destroyed in this region compare with the most terrible storms recorded in the west indies and the latter must yield coringa on the coromandel coast has been several times desolated by these terrible storm waves in december seventeen eighty nine three immense rollers came ashore during a single storm the town was destroyed the neighboring country inundated ships were torn from their anchorage and thrown high on the land twenty thousand people were lost and the heaps of sand and mud rendered search for bodies and property useless in may eighteen thirty three the region at the mouth of the hukli was inundated by a cyclone three hundred villages and fifty thousand people were destroyed in june eighteen twenty two borisel and bakergunge at the mouth of the ganges were overwhelmed and fifty thousand persons drowned but hindostan has far greater horrors to report a terrible flood in eighteen eighty seven was driven by the cyclone over the ganges delta the victims numbered many thousands exact figures not at hand but in eighteen seventy six a cyclone swept the backergunge district and rolled in a storm wave over the eastern edge of the fertile delta covering it with from ten to fifty feet of water when the storm had subsided it was found that more than one hundred thousand people had perished finally a great cyclone in seventeen thirty seven october eleventh and twelfth swept the ganges delta with a wave thirty feet deep on the land three hundred thousand people perished in this storm the mind cannot grasp the appalling magnitude of such a disaster these cases are the most destructive cyclones on record and in each case the destruction is due largely to the character of the region traversed though the winds of bengal are not surpassed in violence by those of any country in the world were the harbor an open seaport instead of a large river no ship could live through such a storm other regions in the east suffer much from tempests the whole malay archipelago with the malaccas and philippines are visited quite as frequently as the coast of hindostan a cyclone that swept the philippine islands november sixth eighteen eighty five destroyed ten thousand people and millions of dollars worth of property the same character of storms is frequently met with in the japan and china seas 
where it is known as the Typhoon, our anglicized spelling of the Chinese title Typhoon. With one example of the power of this storm, this chapter must close. In the narrative of Commander Hall of the British Navy is found this description of a typhoon that occurred at Hong Kong, July 21 through 22, 1841. For days previously, large black clouds appeared to settle on the hills on either side. The atmosphere was extremely sultry and oppressive, and the most vivid lightning shot incessantly along the dense, threatening clouds, and looked more brilliant, because the phenomena were most remarkable at night, while during the day the threatening appearances were moderated considerably, and sometimes almost entirely disappeared. The vibrations of the mercury in the barometer were constant and rapid, and though it occasionally rose, still the improvement was only temporary. A storm was therefore confidently predicted. Between seven and eight o'clock in the morning, the wind was blowing very hard from the northward, or directly upon the shores of Hong Kong, and continued to increase in heavy squalls hour after hour. Ships were beginning to drive and the work of destruction had commenced on every side. The Chinese junks and boats were blown about in all directions, and one of them was seen to founder with all hands on board. The fine basin of Hong Kong was gradually covered with scattered wrecks of the war of elements, planks, spars, broken boats, and human beings clinging hopelessly for succor to every treacherous log were tossed about on every side. The wind howled and tore everything away before it, literally sweeping the face of the waters. From half-past ten to half-past two, the hurricane was at its highest, the barometer at this time having descended to 28.5. The air was filled with spray and salt, so that it was impossible to see anything that was not close at hand. The wind roared and howled fearfully, so that it was impossible to hear a word that was said. Ships were now drifting foul of each other in all directions. Masts were being cut away, and from the strength of the wind forcing the sea high upon the shore, several ships were driven high and dry. The Chinese were all distracted, imploring their gods in vain for help. Such an awful scene of destruction and ruin is rarely witnessed, and almost everyone was so busy in thinking of his own safety as to be unable to render assistance to anyone else. Hundreds of Chinese were drowned, and occasionally a whole family, children and all, floated past the ships, clinging in apparent apathy, perhaps under the influence of opium, to the last remnants of their shattered boats, which soon tumbled to pieces and left them to their fate. On the 26th, another typhoon occurred, but not so severe as the first. The storm at sea presents a class of peculiar dangers and a variety of thrilling experiences such as the landsman never knows. The stories of great shipwrecks and other purely naval disasters form some of the most interesting narratives in history, and doubtless the reader will be pleased to notice, in detail, the perils of the deep, and to learn of the precautions taken and the means in common use for averting, as far as possible, the disastrous results of the tempest. 
certainly the brave tars who peril their lives on the ocean to bring us the luxuries of a foreign land deserve especial attention and no apology need be given for devoting a portion of this volume to the story of their perils and daring end of chapter eight recording by warren cotty gurney illinois warren cotty thank you warren cotty gurney illinois this is D.B. Spitzer once again saying thank you for making it all the way through. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have made it all the way through this episode, give us a thumbs up on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and say, I made it all the way through. Repair of Reputations with Dominique Lamascus and the Year of Sex Olympics and um, those two A's that we covered in the very beginning of the show. And it's been so long since I started editing that I don't recall. Thank you all.